Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christmas and what it means. It is a time where we celebrate with families and we give gifts and all that is good. But God, Christmas is ultimately about the gift that was given to us. And God, I know that in this season, we're so busy and so crazy and stressed. And and God, the, the greatest gift that we need is peace. And help us to know, God, that peace exists in a person. And God, I pray that no matter what the circumstances are that we are in, you would speak to us today. You would speak to us in your word, through your word. Help us to receive it. We know we can't see and understand it unless you open our eyes. So would you do that? And then would you show us the gift that you want to give us in your son, in yourself? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. That was good. That was good. You sound good. You look good. We got some work to do. So if you got a, a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter nine. We're going to look at what is arguably one of the, probably the greatest Christmas text there is in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, what you just saw just a second ago, where it talks about the child is born, the son is given. But it's important for us to understand the context of that verse to understand what happened in verses one through five prior to Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. So we'll get to chapter nine, verse six. But before we do that, I want us to look at verses one through five, because again, it's important to understand the situation that was going on that Isaiah was writing to, because Isaiah is a prophet. And so the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's after the law. You get to the prophets. And and Isaiah is called what's a major prophet. It doesn't mean that the other ones have less significance or importance, but Isaiah is major in that there's a lot. And so a prophet is one who would receive a word from God. So a prophet was saying God's word that God had said to him, and he's saying it to the people. And so God was speaking a word to the people, which is called a prophecy, and he's doing it through a prophet. And it's it's given to a group of people that are in a circumstance and a situation that was very dark, as you're going to see. And so I think this word that God gave to them is very timely for us, because what we need today is a word from God. We need a word from God to tell us about what he's doing and what he has been doing and what he will be doing, because in that is where we find our peace. And so I'm hoping in Isaiah chapter nine that that's what you'll see as we understand what God said to them and therefore what he's saying to us. So let's go Isaiah chapter nine. We're gonna start in verse one. It says this. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. If you're redneck like me, it's Naphtali, all right? But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, again, you need to understand this is written to a specific group of people at a specific place in human history. And that human history is the time when the nation of Israel had been conquered by another nation, the Assyrians. And that nation had come in, primarily ransacked the whole country, but in the northern part of Israel, they received the worst part. And these two 
places that he's describing are actually two sons. Because remember, Israel was a person before it was a nation. And Israel had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And those sons had allotted places when they went in to the promised land, except for the Levites who didn't have an allotment because they were the priests. And so they were taking care of all the people. And so God was their allotment. But these two sons were in the northern part of the country. And in that part of the country, got hit the worst when the Assyrians came in. So these people right now are in a lot of anguish. And that word, their anguish means restriction, means, you know, it's not a good thing. The idea is there's a lot of pain. It's, there's no freedom. They've been overrun. And it says, he brought into contempt this land. Now, here's what's hard to understand sometimes is when God does things or allows things to happen that we would look at as just not good. And, and the Bible uses the word to describe that a lot as darkness. In fact, you're going to see that word in just a second. And so this idea of anguish is pervaded in, in the sense that there's this darkness that's come upon them at this time. But God's saying, but in that darkness, I don't want you to have darkness. I don't want you to have gloom. Why? Because I'm going to turn the gloom into something glorious. That's what he says. He says, there's no gloom for her that's in anguish, even though right now you're in contentment because I'm going to make this into something glorious. Now, again, this is the hard part about walking with God because the Bible describes God, or, or better yet, God reveals himself to us in the Bible. The primary picture is he's a father. Now, I'm a father. I've got two kids. My son will be 15 next month. My daughter turned nine this month. And so this time of the year is always a big time because it's also my 17-year my, my anniversary, which is crazy, is in January. I, we moved here in January nine years ago. So this is just a, a lot happens in this time of year. But as a father, I have these two, two kids, and it's my job to help raise them, right? And I'm trying to do the rest of you a favor. And so therefore, I discipline my kids. And I grew up in a home where my father disciplined me. And, and, and when a father has to discipline his kids, it's one of those things that he has to do things that bring contempt and anguish and pain on his kids. And the kids, when it's happening, don't understand it. And it's always weird, right? You remember back when you were a kid and your father would say something like this, trust me, it's hurting me more than it's hurting you. And it's at that point, you're like, I don't think so, sucker. Right? Like there's no way right now this is hurting you more because you got the belt in your hand, right? And I'm receiving that and I'm in way more physical pain. Right? And then they would say something like this. I'm only doing this because I, help me, love you. You're like, this don't feel like love. This feels like abandonment, right? This doesn't feel like love. But again, we know in the book of Hebrews, which the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people who, to help them understand that Jesus was their Old Testament Messiah. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, do not despise the discipline of the Lord because he is treating you as sons. In fact, it says, if he is not disciplining you, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. Every father disciplines as it seems good to them because it produces righteousness. So how much more so does God discipline? So the reason why the nation of Israel at this point in time is in this circumstance is because of their own choices. 
They walked away from God. They had other gods in their life. And so they try to do what we do. They try to have a little bit of God, a little bit of everything else. And so then God says, okay, if that's what you want, then I'm going to let these nations with other gods come in and conquer you. See how it goes for you. So he's disciplining them in this time. But the good thing about God as a father is he's letting them know, even though this present darkness has come and it has come because of your simple choices, this is not all there is. This is not the end. And I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I need to know this Christmas. Because Christmas, although it's a joyous time, it's also a dark time in a lot of ways. And this Christmas, the message of Christmas is this, is that darkness isn't the end, that something else is coming. Look at verse two. This is why I love this picture. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, let's stop and talk here for a second. Two pictures here. He says, those who walk in darkness... And those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness. You ever tried to walk in the dark before? Does it go very well for you? No, it's painful to walk in the dark, right? Because you hit your shin, you hit your knee, right? You trip on something. I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever walked into a wall and hit your nose? That is some of the worst pain on the planet. I don't care how big or muscular you are. That happens. Tears are coming to your eyes. You can't stop it, right? It's just, it's painful. And so what happens is you try to walk around in the dark and then you're like, forget this. I'm just going to sit down. And then I love this picture. And you say, why do you love that? Because those that are sitting in the darkness need to be reminded that darkness is not normal. Now, darkness is always a picture that's describing something else. Biblically speaking, darkness is never good. It's terror, it's evil. You could even go so far as to say as darkness represents dysfunction because darkness is not a thing, it's the absence of a thing. So darkness is simply the absence of light. And so darkness is just the opposite of light, it's the opposite of good, it's the opposite of functional, it's the, option, the opposite of healthy and so these people, even though their sin brought them into this present state of darkness and they're walking around and then they've learned to just dwell in it, the Bible says, but light has shown. Now, here's why it's so important to understand that you and I, if we're not careful, then we get comfortable with the darkness. We get comfortable with the dysfunction. And when light shows up, it's so jarring to us that the very natural thing that we do is we try to close our eyes and get back to the darkness. This is why marriage is so traumatic. Now that may seem like a weird juxtaposition to you, but let me explain myself, all right? You're like, what in the world does this have to do with marriage? Everything. I got married when I was 23 years old. And for 23 years, I lived in my family in my culture of my family, in the dysfunction and darkness of my family. And guess what? That was normal to me. But when I got married, there's another person who walks in to my family, into my dysfunction, and what I think is abnormal, she sees as unhealthy. She sees as abnormal. 
And then I walk into her family and what's normal to her, I look at it like that's abnormal. I'll never forget, again, this is what makes it so traumatic, that when we got married in my family, we, we would have blow-ups, and normally it's my dad, because during that time in his life, he wasn't following Jesus, he would get mad, right? And then the rest of us wouldn't say much, and then we would go to bed that night, and then we'd wake up the next morning and act like it never happened. You got a family like that? Where we just shoved everything under the rug, right? We never dealt with anything, so in my family, that was normal. And I'll never forget my wife coming into that. And she's like, Jason, that is not normal. This, this is darkness and dysfunction is all I know. And then I'll never forget going to her family one time. And in their family, they didn't push it under the rug. They talked it out, which was good. But I'll never forget a conversation with her and her dad talking and voices started getting raised and I'm over there eating something. I'm like, somebody's about to die. Like, cause in my house, you don't talk back to my dad. You don't say anything. Right. And they're having a conversation. I'm like, this is not going to end well. I'm just keeping my mouth shut. Because what was normal to them was abnormal to me. And what was normal to me was abnormal to my wife. I'll never forget when I moved here nine years ago in the church that planted our church, Westridge Church, the pastor of that church, Brian Beloy, who is my pastor. I had a, a lunch with him. I'd only been here for about a month. And at that season of 2010, Revolution was in a far different place. Not just because we didn't meet at this location and in Jasper, but we were in a far different emotional place. And I'll never forget, Brian said to me, he said, Jason, you have to understand something, that as you help the church move from dysfunction to function, as you help it move from unhealthiness to healthiness, people will start thinking you're weird. Because people who live so long in unhealthiness, when health shows up, it's weird to them. People who live so long in dysfunction and darkness, when function shows up, it's weird to them. He says, so you just have to know people will fight you in this process of trying to get healthier because you're now exposing things that nobody likes to deal with. This is like, yeah, this is why I avoid family gatherings, right? But, but why am I saying this? Here's why I'm saying this, because you and I all need to be reminded that darkness is not normal. That dysfunction is not normal. And here's why you and I need to be reminded of it. Is because God walked into our darkness and brought light. He says, those who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in deep darkness, light has come on them. This is what John 1 says. When it says Jesus was the light and his light was the life of men. And so Jesus is the one who brings the light into the darkness. And so here's what you and I have to understand that even in the darkness, it's as light to God and he can see. Even though you can't see, he can see. And this darkness that we get in, it may be because of our own sinful choices, but it also may be from other people's sinful choices that we get. We're in it because of their choices. It wasn't that we chose it directly. It happened to us indirectly. And it's in those moments, you and I, we question the goodness and sovereignty of God because they're like, if God was so good, how did I get into this situation? That we need the message of Christmas 
that even though it's dark, God's not done. Look at the next verse, verse three. It says, you have multiplied the nation. There's that word again. If you've been here for the last couple months, we've been talking about multiply. It's almost like it's a great vision for a church, all right? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, remember this. He's writing this to a group of people that currently that are in darkness, And yet now God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, you have multiplied, you have increased. Don't you think that the people were sitting there and being like, no, you haven't. You haven't multiplied, you've multiplied misery. You haven't multiplied joy, you've multiplied gloom. But here's what you need to understand about how God works. It's so interesting to me. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And Greek and English have tenses that are different than Hebrew. In English and Greek, we have tenses that denote time. So we have a past tense. We have a present tense and a future tense. But Hebrew doesn't have tenses like that. So when we say something like we have, it means it's, it's in the past, or we are, it's present, or we will, it's future, right? You will start a diet in January. That's future, right? <laughs> Just look, we're starting a new series, January 6th, called Burn the Ships. Make sure you're here. It's going to be amazing, all right? Give you some tools. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't have those tenses. In the Hebrew, this is written in what's called the perfect tense. Because Hebrew is not talking about the time of action. It is talking about the kind of action. Let me say that again, and I'll explain it. Both of these words, multiplied and increased, are written in the perfect tense, not to describe the time that it's going to happen, but the kind of action that's going to happen. So when God speaks, he speaks in perfect tense. This is why God says things like this, and you read this in the Bible, that before the foundation of the world, the lamb, Christ, had been slain. Now, before the foundation of the world in temporal time, had Christ been slain yet, or was that still to come? Still to come. It hadn't happened yet. But when God says it in the perfect tense, it's as good as done. Because when he says it, it's going to happen because he's outside of time. And so when it's in the perfect tense, even though it hasn't happened in time yet, it's already happened outside of time. So when God is saying to the nation of Israel that is in a current darkness, I have multiplied you, I have increased your joy, even though in that time they weren't being multiplied and their joy wasn't being increased, God's saying it's as good as done. And you're going to rejoice as at harvest time. Now, harvest time is when we reap, right? It's the result time. Galatians 6, Paul says, do not, uh, God will not be mocked. Whatever you, uh, whatever you sow, you will reap. And so do not give up sowing because in due time, you will reap if you don't give up, right? And the idea of sowing is we put a seed in the ground and then 
magic happens, right? And then it comes out of the ground. And then there's a season where we reap and we get the results of the sowing. And so here's what God is saying. I'm doing something, but what I'm doing is coming to you in seed form. And everything that is needed to produce the result is already in that seed. So it's as good as done, even though you don't see it yet. And this is so helpful to us to understand how God works. Because so often in our lives, we got into darkness by our own sinful choices or someone else's sinful choices. And we say, God, I need you to get me out. And we make deals with God. And we say, God, could you do it next Thursday by four? Right? Anybody done that? You make a deal with him, right? You say, God, I need you to do this. I need you to do it by then. And then that day comes and goes and it doesn't happen. You're like, where are you, God? And God says, I don't give you the time of action. I give you the kind of action. I don't work on your timetable because I know more than you. And if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't ask it like that. And so I love that God is speaking to them like a loving father. And he's saying, listen, don't be mistaken. It's not the time of the action. It's the kind of the action. And the kind of the action that I will do even in your darkness is I will multiply you and I will increase your joy. It's coming to you, but it's coming to you in seed form. And there will be a day where you will reap the results of this. So keep sowing. And this is what I have learned in my life. I have learned that I can't despise the darkness. I have to allow God to develop me in the darkness. I can despise it or I can be developed by it. Now think about this. Where do you put the seed? Where do you put the seed? In the ground. Is it dark in the ground? Yeah but you put the seed in the ground in you put the seed in the darkness and the seed will win every time. In fact, it takes the darkness of the ground to germinate the seed. You don't just take the seed and throw it in the air. And then there's a tree. So some of you right now, God is planted in a season of darkness and you're questioning his goodness. And God's saying to you, I'm multiplying you. I'm developing you. I'm increasing. How am I going to do that? Look at verse four and five. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's right at this point. You're like, pastor, where's the Christmas message? That's the verse before verse six. What is he saying? He is saying the burden of doing this is not on you. You have broke the yoke of the burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You've broken as on the day of Midian. What is that? Real quick. It's a reference. You can write this down. Judges chapter seven. In Judges chapter seven, there's this crazy story of a dude named Gideon that God sends to Midian. I didn't make that up. It's true. Gideon goes to Midian and God comes to Gideon and God says to Gideon, mighty warrior. And, and I, I mean, this is my commentary. It's like, God says this to Gideon. Gideon's like, uh, who are you talking to Holmes? 
Mighty warrior? Homeboy was hiding out in a hole. Why? Because God could see Midian in his future state. I mean, Gideon. Midian too, but Gideon couldn't see it, but God could. So he says, get up and you go fight. So Gideon does. He gets up and he goes and fights. And in this crazy story, he's got 32,000 men and he's going out to fight. And then God, you can go read this in Judges 7. God tells him that's too many. It's too many men because you're going to take credit for this victory. Now, Again, it's got to be at this moment where Gideon's like, God, I don't know if you know this, but normally you want to have more soldiers than the enemy. That's normally how we win battles. But God's like, yeah, but I don't need you to carry that burden. I got this. So he says, let's do a little experiment. You ask all the soldiers, which ones are scared? So Gideon asked and 22,000 raised their hand. God's like, send them home. There they go. Don't you know Gideon's like, 22,000, 1, 2, 3. 10,000. Now, and if I'm Gideon, this is what I'm thinking. Okay, God, I see what you're doing. I got you. All right, now I'm going to strategize with my 10,000. Now I'm going to build this battle strategy. You've reduced me by third. I get it. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate it. And God's like, no, I'm not done. Still too many. I got to stack the odds against you even more, Gideon. So then he says this, let's do another little experiment. Go down to the stream, and then I want you to separate the, the men in two groups. Those who go down to the water and lap up the water like a dog. And then those who bend down and, and nice and refined. So they go down, and 300 men, I kid you not, go <laughs> lapping up the water like a dog. Well, you ever seen a dog lap up like water? This gets everywhere. They come over to your face and slapping water around, right? I mean, you ever seen a human do it? What's your first thought when a human does it? Where's your mama, right? Like, were you born in a barn? So 300 of them. And I, again, I got to think at this moment that Gideon's like, oh yeah, that's right, God. Those 300, yeah, 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 them dog lappers, they got to get out of here. And God says, no, send the 9,700 home you're going to lead this army of 300 dog lappers. I don't even know if that's a phrase. I'm making it up. And we're going to go beat the army. And you're going to break the yoke of this oppressor. And they did. Why? Because God intentionally restricts us. God intentionally plants us. God intentionally allows these things to happen where we feel utterly helpless without him. He says, I'm going to do this as in the day of Midian. You know what you need to know in the darkness that God did it before and he'll do it again. That's what you need to know. How is he going to do it? Now read in verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. For unto us, a child is born. How is God going to do it? He's sending a seed. <laughs> Y'all ain't ready for this. Y'all ready for this? 
He's sending a seed to be planted in the darkness of a womb. To the best of my recollection, those nine months were dark. My memory's a little hazy, but as best I can remember, it was dark and it was comfortable. And when I came out, I wasn't happy. And I wanted to go back to the darkness. Why did God send a child to be born? This is utterly different than when God made the first man. When God made the first Adam, he was created in adult form. He was able to reproduce because God gave him the command to reproduce. But now in the last Adam, as the Bible calls Jesus, he was not created in human form. I mean, in adult form, he was created in in seed form into the darkness. Why? Because when Adam was born, there was no darkness. But when Jesus was born, there was. He was born into your darkness, just like you. However, this child is not any normal child. This child that is to be born, he didn't, physically speaking, he had a genesis. He had a beginning. But notice it says the child is born, but the son is what? Given. Let's try that again. The son is what? Given. Notice the son is not born. Why? Because the son didn't have a beginning. The son didn't have a genesis. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything that was made was made by him. So what that means is, this is a completely different belief system than Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. What that believes is everything in the made category, Jesus is not in. He's in the never made category. He's always been the son. And so the child that is born is the son that is given. The son is not born. The son is God. And the son put on flesh and was born a child. But the son was given. You see, my friends, when it comes to Christmas, here's the Christmas story. Nobody today, nobody, secular, anybody of any intellectual prowess, secular, non-secular, atheist, whatever, nobody questions whether or not Jesus was actually born. Jesus is a historical figure. This is why during Easter and Christmas, you always see articles about the historical Jesus. Because what the world is trying to do is saying, yes, we'll give it to you. He was a historical figure. He did exist in time, but he did not exist outside of time as God. So the world looks at him as a child, but the world does not look at him as the son. He's the eternal son of God. And the government will be on his shoulders. Now, here's why this is So good news for you. You want to know why you're in so much darkness? It's because you've been carrying the burdens on your shoulders. And that was the weight of the world, as you call it, as I call it. You were never meant to carry. So why Jesus said when he grew up, Matthew chapter 11, he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, which means heavy burdened, and I will give you what? 
rest. My yoke is easy. Take it upon you. My burden is light. You know what Jesus is saying? Come walk with me. I'll do all the heavy lifting. You want to know why? Because I got the government on these shoulders, baby. Now let's talk for a second about government. We've got the best government on the planet. No doubt in that. It's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And when our founders founded our government, they founded it because they believed in human sin. They knew that they couldn't concentrate the power into one person. That was a monarchy. They had grown up in a monarchy. And when you have a monarchy, you're at the whim of the king. So if somebody comes and dances before him and then says, cut their head off, you're at the whim. That's in the Bible, right? And so when they created our country, they founded it on the separation of powers, right? Not all the power is relegated into one person. It's relegated of the people, by the people, for the people. That's why we got term limits and all the other things. It's the best form of human government ever to exist on the planet. But here's the thing. It's still run by people. The weight of it is still on the people. And in God's just crazy irony of this message, all the people can do is shut it down. Our government shut down midnight on Friday. You know what I'm saying to you? Don't put faith in the government. The government is not the savior. Because the government is not a thing. It's people. And just because you get a lot more people together doesn't mean they're going to make better decisions. We call that groupthink, mob mentality. In fact, I was a psychology minor, so therefore I studied sociology. People will do things in mobs that they would never do by themselves. So the government was never meant to be on our shoulders. It was always meant to be on his shoulders. Why? Because he's the wonderful counselor. You want to know what that means? It means his counsel is wonderful. His direction, his urging, what he says to do is good. You should listen to Jesus. Why? Because he's the mighty God. He's not just the son of God. He is God and he's mighty. He's the everlasting father. This is not saying he's the first person of the Trinity and the father. It's not talking about relating to the other parts of the Trinity. It's talking about how he relates to you. This is why Jesus told Philip when Philip asked, just show us the father and that'll be enough. Jesus says, how can you say that? If you've seen me, you've seen the father because I'm the exact representation of his nature. If you see me, you see him. So that's what he is to us. And then the last one, he is the prince of what? Peace. Listen, you got to understand this. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. It's much deeper and broader and better word than our word peace. It means wholeness in every area. You want to know what the message of Christmas is? Wholeness in every area in your life is not found in a thing. It's found in a person. In the person whose title is the Prince of Peace. Normally, when you say you're the prince of something, you're the prince of a place. But Jesus is not the prince of a place. He's the prince of a condition. Because Jesus is the one who has perfect relationship with his father. And that is where peace is found. So if his father's the king of peace, he's the prince of it. So why in the world would you and I look to anyone else besides the Prince of Peace? Last verse of the increase of his government and of what's that next word there? 
peace. Let's try that again. Come on, somebody. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love this one. Last slide. The zeal of the Lord will do this. That word there, zeal, it means passion. It means desire. You know what that means? God didn't send his son as the gift reluctantly. He sent his son as the gift out of the passion that he has to get you back into relationship with him. He didn't do this reluctantly or begrudgingly. This is why the Philippians says this weird phrase about Jesus. Before the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Knowing that you were getting peace back with his father. That was the joy. Now, here's the crazy part of the story. Jesus grows up. He dies on a cross. No big deal. A lot of people died on crosses. But he was put in the ground. And don't you know that when he was put into the ground, Satan was like, we won. High five. We got him. Little did Satan know that he was a seed. And when he was put into the ground, that just God restricting, God allowing darkness to create the greatest comeback of human history. When he came out of the ground, don't you know, Satan was like, oh no. Because Satan didn't know that was going to happen. He's not God. Here's all I'm saying to you. This Christmas, you can despise the darkness that you've created or that others have created around you, or you can allow it to develop you. And how does it develop you? It develops you by realizing that God came into your darkness as a seed, as a son, and he beat the darkness. And if you'll trust in him, He'll walk you out into light. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the message of Christmas. That those who dwelt in a deep darkness, light has shone on them. Thank you that you are the light and your light is the life of men. You didn't leave us in our darkness, but you came into it. Born into it and beat it. We're born into it and defeated, but you born into it and beat it. Showing that if we trust you, we will have peace. We can have a multiplying joy that even in this darkness, this is not the end. You're working and we can trust you. You said, Jesus, in John chapter three, that the light came, but people loved the darkness. Oh God, we love our dysfunction. But I pray right now for those that are in the darkness, wouldn't close their eyes to this light shining and would receive it as a gift. 
Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Jesus as the son of God that was born a child and died for your sins and rose to life again, proving that only in him is there life. If that's never happened, then you're doomed for eternal darkness, eternal dwelling. But the light can break in and you can see the truth and then God can begin this journey of walking you into the light of peace and wholeness in every area. So if that's you, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to trust Jesus. Just to confess and profess and possess faith. If you wanna trust Christ, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me, not out loud, it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son, the seed to save me. I receive the gift of Jesus. Forgive my sins. Give me peace and wholeness in every area. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed to trust Christ, would you just very simply raise your hand so we can see that? If you just received him, thank you. Thank you. We got men and women walking around. I'm going to put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. But then those of us who would say we've trusted Jesus, we believed, but God hasn't walked us out of all the darkness yet. And you've been questioning his goodness. I want to speak this prophecy back over you. He has multiplied you. He has increased your joy and it will come in due season if you don't give up. Don't despise the darkness. Let it develop you. Walk towards the light. Walk towards health in every area. When light shows up, when, when someone shines a light on your personal dysfunction, don't walk away from it. Walk into it. Because in the light is your healing and your health. And you watch what God can do if you just have faith like a mustard seed. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.